just wanted to put in a plug for a new book that's out in the bookshelves. It's called Basis for Success. It's not going to appear on the, the business self-help section. <laughs> but it's a series of the Buddhist teachings on, on how you develop concentration. And a series of Dharma talks on the topic. Basis for Success. That's why I said It's um, you know, the Buddha gave a series at the, toward the end of his life. He said there were seven sets of dharmas that were the most essential teachings. One of the Itibada was the basis for success. And of the seven sets, that's the one that gets the least treatment here in the West. This gets talked about the, the role of desire, effort, and discriminating mind, all of which we're told are bad things. But he says these are actually necessary for the practice of concentration. So this, this section, I'd like to talk some, about some practical issues that come up in around the issue of judgment. Let me get the eye drops out of my eyes in a minute. First one is accepting the judgment of other people. You probably encounter people who tell you where you're wrong. And the question is how to take it. And I'll just tell you about what the, the standards that the monks are supposed to use, and you can figure out how you can apply them in your own life. One is that you should never show disrespect to the person who criticizes you, no matter how stupid the criticism is. Really. For the monks, if they say something that is, if, you know, we feel is really off the wall, or it's just you know, a controversial, an issue where there's controversy about what is the right or wrong interpretation, the monks are supposed to say, well, this is the way I was taught by my teacher. And if there's a basis in the text for what the teacher taught, then it's considered a legitimate response. But you never, ever show disrespect because there's sometimes, you know, people, even unlikely people may have something good to say, something perceptive to say. And the Buddha says, when someone points out your errors, you should regard them as pointing out treasure. That may be false treasure, but you want to look into it. But if you show disrespect when they criticize then they're not going to criticize you again and you're missing out on an opportunity so see criticism not so much as a tearing down of your self-image or as, as showing disrespect to you but as an opportunity for you to learn because a lot of times you know we can't see our errors other people can see them clearly so it's good to have that have that attitude another big issue that comes up in, in exercise and judgment has to do with recognizing human mistakes in the past. There's a passage in the canon where a man comes, he's been a student of the Jains, and they taught that whoever kills, steals, has illicit sex, lies, or takes intoxicants, breaks the five precepts, is going to go to hell. And so the Buddha says, what do you think of that? And first the man says, Buddha, what do you think of that? And the Buddha says, what do you think of that? What do you think of it? Um, and the, the conclusion is that, you know, if you reflect on the fact, well, I've done those things in my past, that means I'm going to go to hell. He says, if you hold to that view, it's as if you're dragged down to hell even as you're alive as a human being. The Buddha says the proper attitude is to reflect, okay, that was a mistake that I made, whatever the mistake was, and to resolve not to repeat it, and then spread lots of goodwill to yourself, the person you wronged, and then to all beings. You spread goodwill to yourself because it is very easy when you recognize that you made a mistake. 
that you get really down on yourself. You know, I'm a miserable practitioner. I'm nothing's going. I'm not going to amount to anything. And you start just pulling yourself down, down, down. And then there'll be part of you that will rebel against that. So either way, you're you're harming yourself. So you have goodwill for yourself. Saying, so, okay, it's it's part of human the human race. If you don't like the idea that you, you you've committed a mistake, well, sometimes it is re, it's re, re, um, I would say refreshing, but it's relieving to reflect on the fact reflect on the fact that everybody's committed mistakes. We've all done some pretty foolish things, and so it's good to recognize that what they are, and that you resolve to not to repeat that mistake. That's the best that can be asked of a human being. So that. But of course, then you have goodwill for the person you wronged and goodwill for all beings so that you will not make the same mistake around those people. That's the proper attitude to develop. I wish I could get eye drops out of my eyes. This relates to the Buddha's um, second knowledge on the night of his awakening. I think it's good to reflect every day on the Buddha's awakening. There's that character in through the looking glass who says he likes to think about two or three impossible things every morning before breakfast. Well, it's good to think about the Buddha's awakening every morning before breakfast. One, as, as a guide too, when you're meditating, we have this tendency to go straight from our narratives of our daily lives to focus in on the present moment. But when you look at the way the Buddha, Buddha's knowledge is developed over the course of the night of his awakening, first it was knowledge of his previous lifetimes. He had lots of narratives aeons and aeons of narratives. And the question was, well, why did he keep going up and down, up and down, up and down? Because there were some people back in those days who said, dog, in this lifetime, it means you will always be a dog. You were born as a Brahmin, you will always be a Brahmin. But he saw that that wasn't the case. He was sometimes as a human being, sometimes a lower being, sometimes a higher being. So why was that? So then he took the larger picture and looked at all beings in the second knowledge and saw that they went up and down in their rebirths based on their actions. And the, the way the actions played out, though, he saw was very complex in the sense that sometimes you might do something unskillful and then go to a bad destination. Other times you might do something unskillful, but go to a good destination. Now, somebody who was not looking carefully might say, well, then in that case, your actions don't have any bearing on where you go. But he looked at the, each of these individual cases and he saw that in the case of the, the good action going to a good destination, it was also because there were good actions before, good actions after, and right view at the moment of death. All those things together would, would pull you up. Um, that's the case where there was a bad action, but you still went up. is because you had done good things prior to that, good things after that, and at the, or at the moment of death, you had developed right view. That would pull you up. The, the, the bad action would eventually show its results at some point, but at least, at least it would pull you down to a lower level. So what this showed him was the power of your mind in the present moment. You know, at the moment of death, you can overcome a lot of past bad influences. You hold on to right view. That was why in the third knowledge, that's what that's when you focus down on this mind in the present moment to look at the intentions that he was acting on in the present moment to see, are there any intentions that would lead to the end of suffering rather than to more rebirth? So based on this insight, you realize that karma is really complex. It's not just you know, tallying up, you did X bad actions, you know, 45 bad actions and 35 good actions. Nope, sorry, you got to go down. It's not that kind of arithmetic. It's more seeing, recognizing you made a mistake, resolving not to repeat it, and then developing the right view that will have a tendency to pull you up. 
which is which means that karma is not the simplistic thing that teaching that a lot of people think it is. Much more complex. But what it does, so the, the complexity of karma opens you up to the fact that okay, you can recognize a, a mistake, learn from it, and not necessarily have to suffer too much from the consequences of, of, the, of the mistake because you recognize there was a mistake and you stop repeating it. We talked earlier about those five steps in the Buddhist technique for approaching dispassion. And there was one step that I didn't deal with in a lot of detail, which was the step of seeing the drawbacks of an unskillful state of mind. This is where the Buddha would have you apply the, the three perceptions of inconstancy, stress, and self. As you're looking at the drawbacks of whatever that was. And those are the perceptions that are meant to be applied to the drawbacks. And as I said earlier, this is a, the three perceptions are not a teaching that the Buddha would have you apply across the board. When you're getting your mind in the concentration and it's not doing very well, you don't say, ah, insight, concentration is impermanent. And leave it at that. Say, whoops, I'm, I've got to do some work here. This is something to be developed. So these are, there are areas where you don't apply these three perceptions. In this particular case, you would apply the three perceptions to anything that would pull you away from the concentration. You know, the allure of thinking about you know, tonight's meal or any sort of sensual pleasure. So, okay, that's constant. It's stressful. It's not self. I've got work, more important work to do now getting my mind into concentration. It's important that you see that this teaching on the three characteristics is the teaching of perceptions. I use the word inconstant. The, the Pali term anicca is literally the opposite of nicca, which is an action that we would do constantly. And there is a really important difference between impermanence, which is the usual translation, and inconstancy. You know, this building is impermanent. It's it's you know permanent enough that you can take out a mortgage <laughs> and use it in the meantime. But if if this were on you know the San Andreas fault, and there were the you know, tremors every now and then. So I don't know if I want to buy this this particular place. It's, it's too inconstant for me. Someone once asked me, what time, "What's the connection between stress on one end and impermanence on the other?" Because some things are impermanent. It's really good. You're sick. Your illness is impermanent. That's a good thing. This is not what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about the fact that the things we tend to rely on for our happiness tend to be unreliable, tend to be inconstant. They shift around a lot. That's why it's not a safe place to, to place your happiness. The second perception would be the perception of dukkha. Sometimes this is translated as unsatisfactoriness. Um, I find that a very unsatisfactory translation. <laughs> because the word dukkha, in everyday meaning in Pali, meant pain. Stress, pain, suffering. That whole range. You don't say, I have an unsatisfactoriness in my hip. You know, I have a pain in my hip. <laughs> and the point is that from the, compared to the, the happiness or bliss of nirvana, even pleasant sensory contact is stressful, painful. You know, we you know, may not see it like that because we haven't seen what lies on the other side. But the Buddha is sending you this message. Hey, look, compared to what he's experienced in the deathless, this is painful about how good it gets in the, the sensory realm. 
that's good to keep that in mind that you have to be looking at, especially as you get more and more subtle states of concentration. It's very easy to say, oh, this must be it. This is a grounded being, the sense of encompassing awareness when it does seem to be harmed by anything. Look more carefully. There's, there's a stress in maintaining it. And then finally, the question is, if it's inconstant, stressful, the conclusion is not there is no self. The conclusion is, is it worth claiming to be you or yours? And in some cases along the path, you, the answer is actually yes. You're working under concentration. Okay, it's inconstant, stressful, but you're going to hold on. Same with your precepts. You're going to hold on because they, they can deliver you where you want to go. When you get where you want to go, then you let them go. And the, the common images of the taking the raft across the river. Everybody focuses on letting go of the raft when you get to the other side. But you also have to remember that to get to the other side, you've got to hold on. Otherwise, you get swept away. Except in the Mahayana. There actually is a Mahayana text that says, the way to get across the river is to let go of the raft. And I, <laughs> I've never seen that work. <laughs> so these are some perceptions that you would apply to see the drawbacks of things for which you feel that you really need to work on. You see that, okay, this is not really worth it. The other things that would be obvious that it's not, you know, if you, if you, know, if you have an addiction, you see, okay, there's, this is inconstant. The pleasure I get out of this doesn't last. It's, it's unreliable. Part of it is, well, it is reliable in the sense I know if I take that shot of heroin, I'm going to have a, you know, a good rush. But even then, it, the effect begins to wear off. This applies to any kind of addiction. And the Buddha treats suffering as, a, as, a, as, a, as an addiction problem. When he uses the word clinging, basically talking about addiction. That we have to the different, uh, different aggregates. So if you can see that those things are inconstant, stressful, and they're not really worth holding on to. Now to let go, you have to see, okay, there is an alternative. Because a lot of people, their, their addiction is basically a failure of imagination. They cannot imagine themselves not going back for that particular activity. And the same with, same with cleaning of any kind. We can't imagine ourselves not clinging to these things. And then we're saying, look, you're, you'll be better off. And it's when you can see the connection, okay, where I'm clinging, there is suffering. Maybe, maybe, maybe the Buddha's right. You know? give, give, him, give him a chance. Eye drops. Mm. And finally, there's the question of acceptance and equanimity. We talked about this some on Friday, but I'd like to repeat it. Some of the main points. The word acceptance in, in Pali Canon, Atiwasa, appears very, very rarely. And this would be come as a surprise to a lot of people who have been taught that so much of Buddhism, Buddhism is about acceptance. In fact, the main context in which the word acceptance is used is when the Buddha accepts invitations to meals. <laughs> However, there are three areas where he says in, 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 in daily life that you do have to accept things that, that as they're happening. First is you have to accept the fact that there are going to be harsh words spoken to you. You can't live in an environment where you can't, we promise you cannot be triggered. Yeah. Secondly, you have to accept that there will be physical pain. 
And then third, you have to accept that you will be separated from your loved ones. Those are the three areas where the Buddha counts as acceptance. But he doesn't say, well, just, just put up with it. He says, basically, here's how you don't suffer when you're accepting these things. In the case of unpleasant words, you know, there are two, two approaches that he recommends. We mentioned Friday, but I'll mention them again. One is to remind yourself that the nature of human speech is that some people say kind things and other people say unkind things. Some people say true things. Sometimes they say false things. Sometimes it's the same person. Um, sometimes people will say things that are useful to know. Other times they'll say things that are useless. Sometimes they'll say them in a well-meaning way, sometimes in an ill-meaning way. This is the nature of human speech. So when you're being subjected to false, ill-meaning, untrue, or, or false, ill-meaning, useless speech, it's not out of the ordinary. And as a result, you're not justified in, in treating it as something extraordinary, which you are permitted to overreact. Aging is bad. <laughs> My eyes used to be clear. So if you're looking for a world in which your people say only true, kind, well-meaning things for you, find another world. <laughs> and then the second thing the Buddha has you think about is the fact that um, you can make your, your goodwill for the people of the world larger than their misbehavior. The image, he gives a whole series of images. He says you'll make your mind like goodwill like as large as the earth. He has the image of this man coming along with a bucket and a hoe, and he's planning to make the earth be without earth. So he digs here and he digs there and he spits here and spits there and urinates here and urinates there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. It's not going to work because the earth is so much bigger. So someone can come to you with harsh words and want to, want to disturb your goodwill and you say, no, my goodwill is bigger than this, this puny man's silly behavior. If you think about that, your big will, your goodwill is bigger than your boss. Okay, <laughs> good, bigger than your partner. Where it is is trying to get to you. If you hold that image in mind, and this is a case of using a fabricate. and you see the fact that you were. lost out, which is wrong view in capital letters. Um, years back when I was, I was, after I taught in Thailand for two years, we came back before I went back to Ordain. To make a long story short, I found myself in Heathrow, Heathrow Airport, the long line where our, our luggage had been misplaced as a flight connected to, through Paris. And the people in the line were beginning to complain. And the ground stewardess says, I am, this is not my job. You are lucky I'm here. I thought to myself, not in Thailand anymore. In Thailand, I said, we apologize. We're sorry for the inconvenience. And we smooth things over. 
rather than you know, responding with a, with a sharp retort to people's complaints. So try to make your goodwill, imagine your goodwill is bigger than, as big as zero. Another image is that your goodwill is as large as the river Ganges. Someone can come along with a torch and try to set fire to the river Ganges. And the river Ganges back in those days was not polluted, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't set fire. <laughs> Make your goodwill as large as space. People can try to write things on space, but there's no surface for them to write on. So try to make your, your mind without a surface. They can say all sorts of things and you don't hold it. This connects with the Buddha's second um, piece of advice, or third piece of advice, which is that someone says something harsh, you tell yourself, okay, an unpleasant sound has made contact at the ear and you leave it at that. And when the contact ends, the sound will end. And if you're suffering from it after that, that's a sound. You're not suffering from the contact. You're suffering from your own conversation inside. About, well, why did this person say this to me? Why did they disrespect me? That kind of thing. That's what's making you suffer. If you say, okay, they can say what they want. It's not going to, you're just going to leave it right there. And you can deal with harsh words and not suffer from them. Except the fact that they're there. And when you don't suffer from them, you're going to be less likely to say something stupid in response. I, I, I know there are cases where people are angry and they want to get you angry and the fact that you are not getting angry makes them more angry. Um, but just that'll pass. My older brother was a professor of, um, he's still alive, but he used to be a professor of business administration. He's retired now. He came out to the monastery one time and started giving me advice on how to run the monastery as a better business. And I just kind of smiled. He said, you're giving me the Thai smile. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that was one of the most valuable things I learned over in Thailand. <laughs> so that's how not to suffer from harsh words. How not to suffer from pain. It, the Buddha doesn't talk too much about this. He does give an outline in the Sutta on breath mindfulness where deal, when he's talking about dealing with feelings is first you try to breathe in and out, sensitive to rapture, breathe in and out, sensitive to pleasure. Breathe in and out, sensitive to um, mental fabrication, which remember is perceptions and feelings. And then the final one is to breathe in and out, calming mental fabrications. doesn't say anything more than that. But the Ajans in Thailand take those forks for instructions and really run with them for dealing with pain. First one, first two steps, breathing in and out, sensitive to rapture and pleasure. And John Lee's specialty is this. He says, you know, there's pain in your knee. Don't focus directly on the knee. Focus on parts of the body that are not in pain. Give right to a sense of pleasure there. Give a sense of well-being well there. And then think of that going down the leg, out through the knee, after your toes. And it may not make the pain go away, but it, but it gives you a sense, okay, I am not totally the victim of this pain. I, I have some techniques to use. I can be more proactive. And if sometimes it's the, the, the tension of which you're tensing up around the knee has actually aggravated the pain or tension in some other place along the leg, okay, that, that tension can go. And when you're really, really solidly established there, then you're ready for the next two steps. And this is where John Mahabu is special actors which is looking at your perceptions around the feeling. 
you see the feeling, the pain is the same thing as your knee. Then you ask yourself, well, what is what is my knee? My knee, my knee is made up of sensations of you know solidity, liquid, coolness, warmth, energy. The pain is none of those four things. It's actually something separate, like it's a different frequency. And you can see, you know, just hold that perception in mind that they're not the same thing. Then you can ask yourself, well, where is the sharpest point of the pain? And as you focus on it, you begin to realize it's beginning to move around. You focus here, and then especially if you've been really good at learning how to focus on spreading thoughts of, spreading feelings of pleasure. And you, wherever you focus, you get the sense instead of your focus being a tensing up around the object of the focus, it's kind of a dispersal. And so as soon as you start focusing on the sharpest point of the pain, it disperses it. And it goes someplace else. And then you chase it. It's like, you know, were you, were you old enough to have played with Mercury when you were a kid? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I mentioned this to the younger generation. They say, oh my gosh, how do you know they're, they're, they're abusing you as a child. <laughs> if the thermometer breaks, you've got mercury. You can play with it. You know? <laughs> so, and, and, it, and it goes around like that. That's, one that's another technique. Another technique of perception is to ask yourself, is it a solid block of pain or is it individual moments of pain arising and passing away? And you see that it's, it's just these little things coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And then the next question is, when they come, are they coming at you? Or are they going away? There was a time when I was in Singapore one time, and I went to see a Chinese doctor who was going to treat my uh, pain I had in my back. So he had me lie down. He started rubbing some oil in my back. At first it felt nice. They started rubbing harsher and harsher and harsher. He started feeling kind of raw. And then he pulled out these bamboo whisks. <laughs> he started beating. And it was about half an hour. And the first thought that went through my mind is, okay, what bad karma have I done? <laughs> and I knew that he wasn't going to stop. So I said, okay, how, how do I deal with the pain here? And I began to realize, okay, I can actually perceive the moments of pain going away, going away. As soon as they did, it was going away. And it was like it changed the relationship entirely. And the purpose of all this is to change your perceptions on the pain, realizing that the pain inflicting the mind, physical pain inflicting the mind has to have a perception that will create a bridge, brings it in. If you can create perceptions that destroy that bridge, you can be with the pain. And either the pain will actually go away sometimes when you change the perception, or even if it doesn't go away, you feel like you've got this you've got distance from it. Sometimes you can actually sense the pain, you know, coming up out of your leg and hovering there. So there's a lot that can be done, even though pain is something to accept, you, you don't have to suffer from it. And finally, with the loss of a loved one, the Buddha's first recommendation is that you actually express whatever grief you have in a way that you feel is useful. You don't try to bottle it up. You have eulogies for the dead person, you give gifts, you dedicate the merit to the dead person. And then you reflect on the fact that this is not happening only to me, this is happening to everybody, or has happened to everybody. 
And there's that famous story about the woman whose baby had died and she wouldn't admit that it was dead. And so the Buddha said, go get a, a mustard seed from a family where there's never been any death. That's not in the canon. That's in the commentary. I don't think the Buddha would say, I can cure it with mustard seed. <laughs> but at any rate, it, just, it makes the same point, which is that everybody suffers this. The story that is in the canon is King Vasanadi has come to see the Buddha. And while he's talking with the Buddha, one of his courtiers comes up and whispers in his ear that his favorite queen has died. He just loses it. And the Buddha says, you know, when has it ever happened that someone born did not die? This happens to all beings all over the place. And, for, and, and that thought helps take a lot of the sense of, okay, the universe is dumping on me right now. I mean, it's dumped on everybody. That takes a lot of the focus of the pain away from you. So that's the next step. When you start thinking about other people then suffering, then it changes the emotion from, from grief to compassion. The other people have felt this pain that I'm feeling right now. Maybe I should be more compassionate to them because they've, they've been going through this too. And then you ask yourself, okay, what, what good things can I do now in the world? One of the functions of funeral rites is one is to express your love for the person who's passed away, but then to remind you, okay, life has to go on. So the next question is when you think about your, your new compassionate attitude towards everybody, what would be a good, good thing to do in this world? And that way you turn your grief from just a plain dull grief into a, a, a motivation to do something more skillful. So those are ways in which the Buddha would have you deal with the things that you have to accept so that you don't have to suffer from them. As for things you don't accept, an unskillful mind state comes into the mind. You remember the image of driving the cows away. You've got to do what you can to figure out how can I make sure this mind state leaves and doesn't come back. And sometimes you, you just kind of drive it out, but then it'll come back. And you say, okay, I've got to understand this more, in which case you might want to investigate it more. But still, the purpose of investigation is to wipe it out. like people in the army learning you know, a, a language of the enemy. Trying to figure out, this, to figure out the communications of the enemy. We have to really understand the enemy. You have to sympathize with them to some extent. I had a friend one time. How many, how many actual hunters do you know who, who, hunt, who hunted for subsistence? You know? What is their attitude towards the animals? Yeah, food, but one. I, I, I knew a, one, one of my fellow monks in Thailand had hunted when he was younger. He said, you really have to sympathize with the animal. You have to figure out, okay, what is this animal thinking? What does this animal want? Get inside them. What, what, what would scare them away? What would not scare them away? You have to, it's, it's weird. You have to learn empathy for them before you kill them. So have empathy for your defilements before you kill them. <laughs> That's acceptance. As for equanimity, the Buddha says there are three levels of equanimity. There's your ordinary everyday equanimity. And there's the equanimity that comes from concentration or that comes from insight. And then there's equanimity that comes from awakening. The ordinary equanimity is basically the willpower. I just will not react to this. 
and the second level is you've you've actually created a source of well-being inside. The, the, this the second level that the Buddha recommends developing. This is ordinary everyday equanimity. Depends on the strength of your willpower. Sometimes you can keep it up. Sometimes you can't. But if you have an alternative source of pleasure, which can come either from the pleasure of concentration, or there are times when you gain insight into an attachment you have, and you see that you're able to let it go. There's a there's a great sense of joy that comes from that. I'm freed from that. I don't have to. I don't have to fall into that trap anymore. And then you'd be equanimous about those things. That's the kind of equanimity the Buddha wants. It's not just, I have to learn to accept this, because the acceptance that comes from just telling yourself, I have to accept this and be equanimous about it, it gets depressing. Because it emphasizes your lack of agency in that area, which is a source of a lot of, you know, a lot of pain. I've, I've heard some people say that, they, you know, one of the things they learned about teaching on karma is that I have, I have no free will, what a great relief it is that I'm not responsible for anything. But I don't understand these people. There, there was a psychologist who was studying infants one time back in the beginning of the 20th century. And he, he, was, he got focused on something that we all notice about infants. But he actually interpreted it in a really interesting way, which is that infants like to make sounds repeatedly. They get a great deal of joy. And the question is why? And his analysis was that it, it's a sign of their agency. They know if they do X, they will get this result. And they're, beginning to, they're beginning to see there's a pattern. And then it goes from making noises to doing other things repeatedly. But that's how we gain our sense of agency. And it's, there's a great sense of joy. Okay, I can manipulate my environment. I can change things in my environment. So when you come up against the equanimity where it says, no, you can't change this, it you know, goes against your sense of agency. And the only way you're not going to get upset by that is to have this alternative pleasure, either it comes from insight or comes from concentration. You've got a sense of well-being. So that doesn't matter that I can't control that because I've got something better inside. That's how the Buddha recommends you develop equanimity. And then finally, there's equanimity that comes as a result of awakening. Again, awakening itself is not a state of equanimity. There's a lot of joy that comes with it. The Buddha actually called it the highest bliss. But then once you attain that, that, that sense of pleasure, that your attitude, attitude towards a lot of other pleasures in life is really equanimous. You are perfectly fine without them. But we're not just saying, I grit my teeth and say, yeah, I've got to put up with it. No, you've got to find something, a strength inside, a resource inside, like those wells. There's a theory about something called primary water. Have you ever heard of primary water? There was someone who came to Taoist for us at the monastery one time. To make a very long story short, he had learned how to Taoist from someone who had the theory that there's actually water in earthquake faults that comes from a, as a result of chemical reactions underground. And that there are certain wells around the world, which no matter what, the, no matter how dry it gets in terms of the rain, they always have water. In his theory, was that it's coming up through the earthquake faults. This is useful knowledge down in Southern California, the earthquake faults all over the place. <clears throat> like we have a stream in front of the monastery. And no matter how, how bad the drought has been, we've always had water in that stream. So there must be a primary well someplace. Up. 
So you want to make your mind into a primary well. Have a source of water inside that flows whether the whether it's whether it's dry outside or whatever. So that's what I wanted to say about you know, specific issues that come up with the topic of judgment. Do you have any questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is this is a, a problem with a lot of meditators is the feeling that yeah, I've got to keep my emotions under control and you know, even even keel. When something intense like that comes out, okay, just let it out, and more and letting it out allows it to sort of escape, and then you calm down. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, if, you know, if you find that you're dying, the question is, you know, is there something I can do about this? And you've gotten to the point where there's nothing you can do about it, then you have to accept it. In other words, you get a disease, which could be fatal. You actually do go see a doctor, and the Buddha recommends seeing a doctor. But when someone, when the event has happened, then you have to accept it. Or when you, you know, the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. That's when you say, okay, I've got to accept it. There's something, there's something you can do about it. But when someone has died, I, I told the story the other night, there's a story in the commentaries about this king who's, his wife, his queen dies, and he's really attached to her. And so he just keeps the body around the bedroom. And the palace people are kind of upset about this. So they talk to this monk who's psychic. And they say, can you find out where she's gone? Well, it turns out she was born as a worm in, in a sort of muddy place. And so they find the worm, and the, the monk translates for the king. And the question is, of course, do you still love me? And the worm says, of course not. I've got a, I've got a new husband. <laughs> more attracted to him. <laughs> and so the king finds, okay, get rid of the corpse. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, when I was taking an anthropology course, there was a tribe that I was studying who, if there was an illness, they took it very seriously. You did not joke about illnesses. But when somebody had died, then there's a lot of joking <laughs> around the death. Because at that point, there's nothing you could do about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's important to get specific. So you, that way you begin to see the specific triggers, you know, why that particular issue sets you off, because that will give you some insight into other aspects of your mind as well, other things that you're holding on to. Whereas if it's just kind of you know, generic aversion, you say, well, what have I learned? There's a lot of this emphasis in, in the forest tradition that you have to think the Buddhist teaching is your own, which means you, you make it relevant to the specifics of your case. Any questions? You would teach him the Dharma. Yeah. But you just wouldn't say, hmm, potential friend? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
Right. Right. If they come for help, then you get it. There was a case years back where there had been a, a military dictatorship in Thailand and there had been a popular movement against it. And they had brought in some um, troops from the, the border police. Now, the border police in Thailand tend to be pretty high in marijuana most of the time. So they're kind of, they're, they're, their nerves are kind of brittle. Because, <laughs> you know, they're sitting there on the border, nothing's happening, you know. And so they smoke pot. <laughs> and so they were told that a communist insurrection had happened in Bangkok and they were needed. So they were brought down and they shot up a lot of people. And this went on for a couple of days. Apparently the king didn't know about it because his communications satellite had been dis or disk satellite disk had been dis disconnected. When he found out about it, he called the, the leader of the military dictatorship and the leader of the popularizing into the palace. I don't, I don't, this would have been 1990, 1991. And I don't know if any of you saw the TV. Did anyone see the people coming in to see the king? The etiquette is if the king is standing, you walk in. If the king is sitting down, you have to crawl into the room. So he sat down, which meant they had to crawl in. And he gave them a lecture. Why are you killing fellow Thai people? And so the military dictatorship fell. And then the particular military man who was, who was responsible for giving the order for the troops to shoot suddenly found himself, as they say, slapping mosquitoes out in the distant province of Thailand. His daughter, who was in a university in Bangkok, could not stay in the university. And so she ended up in a diploma mill down in San Diego, of which there are a lot. That's another topic. Um, and so he, he and his wife came to visit her one time and there was a Thai association of San Diego and they decided to hold a dinner for him to welcome him and they said okay nobody's going to talk about what happened in Bangkok and that was all he could talk about was how bad he felt about that decision he made and so they said okay we've got to take him up to see a John Suat so they came up to the monastery and right after the meal and John Suat sat and talked with him for two hours gave some really good advice, very compassionate. And then after the man left, he said, this, these guys, you know, if they, you know, if, this, you know, if, his, if he hadn't been demoted, he wouldn't have stepped foot in the monastery. So his attitude toward the military, it's not all that complimentary, but he was, had the compassion to teach him for two hours. And this is not a Christian universe where everybody's supposed to, all guys' children got to get along. You realize there are some people who are really, really toxic, you want to stay away. Yes. I mean, this, this is the point I've been making all day is that this depiction of Buddhism as favoring a non-judging mind is a real distortion. People say, you know, they like the three noble, three characteristics are not a value judgment or the four, four noble truths are not a value judgment. It's really a distortion. You're trying to judge okay, what kind of activity is worth doing, what kind of activity is not worth doing. 
for the sake of the time. Okay, let's let's go look at it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> to the effect. <laughs> okay, you've got these thirty-six emotions. Okay, basically, you've got three household emotions, house-based emotions, and three renunciate-based emotions. Okay, the house-based happiness is when you get pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. Renunciate happiness is when you experience the inconstancy of those very forms, their change, feeling, sensation, when seized with right discernment, has come to be that all forms, both before and now, are in constant stress, want something to change. And it's called renunciant-based happiness. In other words, there's a pleasure that comes when you just kind of step back from the pleasures you had and say, okay, all pleasures are in constant. I don't have to be attached to them. That's the pleasure that comes from that. Renunciant household pain is when you get unpleasant sights, smells, sights, uh, smells, sensations. Renunciant distress is when you realize, okay, there is a goal to deathless. I'm not there yet. And sometimes you're told, well, if you don't have a goal, then you don't have to suffer. Mm -hmm. But the Buddha is saying, no, you actually want to cultivate this as a motivation for wanting to practice. We'll get to that further down. And then you have the house-based equanimity where an untaught person who has not conquered his limitations or the results of action is blind to the danger of things, sees forms of the eye with equanimity. And in other words, that equanimity does not go beyond the form. In other words, you simply tell yourself, okay, there's a site here. I'm just going to be equanimous about it. Basically, willpower. And that's the equanimity that comes from, from the renunciate-based equanimity. And again, when you're experiencing consciousness, et cetera, of all forms, then the mind feels liberated from, from its attachment to forms, and there's a sense of equanimity towards all the forms. Then he goes on to say, to overcome your attachment to house-based happiness by developing renunciate-based happiness. Overcome your attachment to house-based house-based pain or distress by developing renunciate distress. In other words, I'll give you an example. You're, you're sort of miserable about a certain situation. Say, I shouldn't be miserable about this situation. I should be miserable about the fact that I haven't gotten anywhere on the path. So I should focus my energies there instead of just mourning the loss of whatever or being upset about what the situation is. I've got to focus my mind on something because the, this, this particular kind of distress actually motivates you to practice. And that will, do, that will give rise to renunciant-based joy, renunciant-based equanimity. Then you go beyond that and there's a state called non-fashioning further down where you don't create a sense of self around these things. Notice you wait for a while before you stop, you, you let go of that sense of self around these things. Recently, we had a, a couple who came this, uh, who have been old time to Boston meditators for decades. And I was trying to teach them concentration. And she kept saying, well, I, there's a sense of pleasure, but I tell myself not to be attached. And I said, please be attached. <laughs> You're not going to get good at this if you don't get attached. 
okay, you, you develop this sense of renunciate-based distress, and then you practice based on that. Then you get some results from the practice, and then you enjoy the results of the practice. That's when you let, let them go. I don't need to create a sense of me or mine around them. That's kind of a synopsis of that. Could be anybody. Could be anybody. Part of the path, right? And 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 monks can have house-based distress, etc., just as well as householders can. And householders can develop renunciate-based attitudes as well. Yes. Well, again, think of it as judging a work in progress and rather than trying to come to a final judgment. And I, mean, there are the, I think a lot of it is, even in the West, the, this negative idea of judgment has, is relatively recent. I think it dates from the romantics. Where you know, we shouldn't judge one another's you know, intu intuitions about the universe because everybody has a right to his, his or her own, her own personal intuitions about things. So don't judge anybody. And then people who do judge are the, in these narrow-minded, you know, fundamentalist Christians who are passing final judgment on everybody. That's kind of the picture that a lot of people have. It's a cultural thing. They, I don't think they had that cultural bias, um, which you might want to say, rather than be, uh, be judgmental, you want to be judicious. But you do have to, the, the word for judgment in Pali does, like English, has this sense of, weighing things as to which which you which which ones you want to take which ones are of more value okay um there's an interesting passage where the buddha the buddha talks about five qualities you want to bring the first three are having to do with not despising one don't despise the speaker two don't despise the dharma three don't despise yourself no, don't sit there and say, oh, this drama is way beyond me. I'll never understand it. Well, maybe there's something here. The third quality is to have singleness of mind, egaka, which is basically being focused on the topic rather than letting your mind wander. And then finally, um, appropriate attention, which is asking yourself, okay, how does this teaching apply to the problem of my suffering right here, right now? And then you're thinking either in terms of skillful or not skillful, in terms of the categorical teachings, either skillful or not skillful, or in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So that, that's where you would judge. How does this apply? And you might decide, well, this is a pretty crappy Dharma talk, it doesn't apply. <laughs> but you don't start out with the attitude, because there, there is this thing that if you, you start out wanting to find fault from the very beginning, okay, you're not going to learn anything. There is a sutta where this guy wakes up in the morning and says, I wanted to, I want to get an argument with a contemplative. Who would be a good contemplative to get an argument with anyone? And so he walks out on the street, finds the Buddha. <laughs> and so he tries to stir the Buddha up. Of course, the Buddha doesn't get stirred. Um, but there are people like that who listen specifically for the case of you know, making, you know, looking down on the speaker that exists. Um, the, the reference to egaka is really interesting. 
because the word ekakata is often translated as one-pointed. Um, eka means one. Aga doesn't necessarily mean point. It means the highest point of something or the highest place, like the summit of a mountain or the ridge of the roof is an aga. There's another meaning for aga, which means meeting place. Like this building would be called an aga, where people can come together and meet. And given that they talk about concentration being a dwelling, and they should enter into and remain in this dwelling, I think the second meaning is the appropriate one. So you sort of gather all your thoughts about one, gather all your thoughts and attention around the, the topic. But sometimes ekakata is, tr is translated as one point as meaning that you have no sense of the body, you don't hear anything, you don't think anything. Which I don't, if, if you're listening to a Dharma talk and you don't hear it, <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> so, yeah, you want, you want, that, that's how you judge it. How does this apply to the, the end of suffering? Keeping aversion and also being just open to, oh, there may be something good here. And there may be something that I am qualified to benefit from. Mm -hmm. Okay, being attached to that sensation means that you have to cultivate it. Without, without, some, without really enjoying it, you're not going to put all the effort into cultivating it. Once you have that pleasant sensation inside and you can tap into it, you're going to find yourself less hungry for other pleasures. And so as long as you've got some other lesser pleasures that you're really attached to, I would say hold on to the, the pleasure of the concentration. Learn to appreciate it as a better form of pleasure. And then when you finally decided, okay, things outside don't interest me that much. I mean, the only thing that really interests me now is my concentration. Now, if you find that your work, your family, is, you know, working the family, working whatever other work you have is suffering as a result of this, that's when you got to remind yourself that has to be a time and a place. But otherwise, I would say, you know, enjoy the pleasure, be attached. And then when you've got let, let go of other things, okay, then you can turn around on this particular pleasure and say, okay, I've got to work on my attachment here. So don't be too quick to let it go. Okay, one or the other of the traditions forms the framework for your understanding. And then the question is, does this one, does the framework work in, these, in, this, in this direction or is it not working in this direction? And then if you find, okay, the general framework works in the, in the proper direction, developing dispassion, being unfettered. And then you say, well, the, the teachings from the other tradition, to what extent do they actually fit into this framework? One of the worst things for any relationship is disrespect to the other person. When you're feeling disrespected, you're saying, we got to talk. And if the other, 
if, if the, the things that you say are been hurtful, but don't they not, they're not showing any disrespect. It's just that there's a lack of awareness, a lack of you know circumspection. Um, so yeah, let it go for the time being. Unless it's repeated again and again and again, then you say, okay, we, we've got to sit down. And then you've got to find the right time and right place. You know, when is the other person going to be receptive? Well, how do I approach the topic in a way that they'll be willing to listen? I had, I had, I had to get a lot of instruction for this from, from the John Pua. In the evening, my job was to go up and clean his hut, prepare his bath, wash his robes. And if there's anything that came up in the course of the day I wanted to talk about, that was the time to talk. And so sometimes I would just kind of blurt out something and he refused to talk. So I have to go and think, okay, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and then I begin to realize well, the way you approach the topic, the very first sentence is going to make a huge difference. How, 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 they talk, how the topic is approached. Right. You want to ask yourself, okay, is this really what I, what I, my perception of the situation was, or has my perception been clouded by something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, it's four o'clock. One last question, anybody? Okay, the, the, the fact that she's suffering right now is karma. And the question is, does she have to continue suffering? No, not necessarily. Because the Buddha doesn't think of karma as kind of a, a single bank account. You know, where you have one running balance. His, his images of us feel with lots of different seeds. And some bad seeds may be sprouting right now, but she also may have some good seeds which could potentially be sprouting, like having friends who are compassionate say, we'll give you a little help. And this is the extent to which you feel that you are in a position where you can give help. So maybe someday I'm gonna be in a situation like that. Here's my chance to create some good karma. Now, in some cases she might be a karma sink. All kinds of good things and just gonna disappear. Mm -hmm. you're not guilty for her combo but you are there's a question is do you want to help her okay. <laughs> i'll take a little pot of soup over here sometimes that you know what that stands for just any kind of little help here and there Right, right. You can't take over care management, but you can, you can soften the blow. Okay. Well, thank you for your attention. Hope this has been helpful. <laughs>